You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Well, good morning, all. So I have a very dear friend named Matt, and uh, he's actually... uh, Anyone he meets, it's one of those, this guy's never met a stranger. Super highly relational. Um, uh, he has friendships all across the country, just very well connected. We're so close, we, uh, we've been calling each other brother for many, many years. And uh, he's just one of these guys, he walks in the room and the party has arrived. And uh, usually, um, it's not uncommon for whenever uh, Matt comes up in conversation, even if he's not in the room, uh, his discussion of the tattoo he has on his forearm uh, often comes up. And uh, years ago, he had a certain phrase uh, printed on his forearm, and he got to thinking, like, all right, what do I want my life to be about? Kind of imagining the end, when it's all said and done, what do I want my life to be all about? And this phrase that he has tattooed on himself, it has led to life-changing conversations, service opportunities where there ordinarily wouldn't have been, loving uh, words where they may have been uh, absent before. He has uh, the phrase in black, purple, and pink, Uh, on his forearm, for the glory. He decided years ago that everything he says, does, believes, anyone he comes into contact with, his entire life wants to to be lived to the glory of Jesus. And I've heard many stories, even been around for some uh, circumstances where uh, that tattoo or that reminder on his own body has made the difference. Uh, My absolute most favorite came years ago. Matt and I were with a team down in Jamaica uh, serving the people there. And the entire week, uh, he just kept talking about this massive craving he had for Cinnabon. And Cinnabons are often prevalent, you know, uh, very obvious in airports. And he was just so excited, like, as soon as I get to that airport, I'm heading straight for the Cinnabon which if you've had Cinnabon before, you understand why. Anyway, so we, you know, the week is all wrapped up. We get to the airport, and true to his word, he goes straight to the Cinnabon, so he pays his $11 for the cinnamon roll that's about you know, this big, and he, uh, he just dives in with his fork, and if you've had Cinnabon, you know it's a heavenly experience. Take one bite, and then all the cares of your world go away. So he's in the midst of this, and at most it's probably three bites, right, because you know, they're small. And uh, someone else from the team spots this Cinnabon in Matt's hand from across the way, comes over just so presumptuously, takes his hand and takes a chunk out of his Cinnabon that he had been waiting for the entire week. And I saw the most miraculous thing. It was all nonverbal communication. I saw this instant flash of hatred, anger, and fury flash in Matt's eyes. And then just as quickly, his eyes fall to his forearm. He reads for the glory. And he resigns to being a servant of Jesus and even says the words, would you like the rest of it? Certainly miraculous. This one tattoo prevented a murder in an airport. Astonishing thing. So this weekend, the kind of the title of the message is called Imagine the End. Much like Matt's tattoo, we want to kind of envision what do we want, not, just, not necessarily just for our own lives, but especially for our children and our students, what do we want their end to look like? We want them to be devoted and uh, enthusiastic uh, followers of Jesus. Uh, it's kind of week two of this series called Fusion, and it was explained last week, uh, any, when anything is f- two things are fused together, uh, in this case, we're taking the influence and power of the church along with the power and influence of families and putting them together. 
as up here, it's the process of joining two or more things together to form a single entity. In this case, we think that when the church comes together with the family, they can come together to make this powerful, even unstoppable force in the lives of children and students. That's our entire focus and direction for uh, this five-week series. And also something cool about this series, it's all based on a few, a few verses in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, it was explained last week, it's called the Shema. That's what Jewish people refer to this as. And it's this uh, paragraph of just a reminder of for families and children and parents, what do we want to represent? What do we want our lives to be about? Where do we want our love and energy going? We want it all for the love of God. From Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 4 through 7, here's how this unfolds. The entire five-week series based on this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, and when you are getting up. And each week we're kind of carving up uh, these verses. Uh, each kind of snippet gets its own weekend. And last week, uh, Roger kicked things off kind of with uh, the message was titled, titled Widen the Circle. Uh, but he gets that phrase, uh, those first three words of the Shema, listen, O Israel. And last week was very much about kind of casting the entire net over the entire church as far as every one of us has a role to play in impacting and influencing the lives of students and children. No one is left out. It was pointed out that uh, the text does not say, listen, O parents, listen, O grandparents, listen, O uncles and cousins and aunts. It says, listen, O Israel. Every one of us has a part to play in this. Everyone is involved, challenged to and encouraged to. And something very cool, if you want to look at the bulletin and mark your calendar, just kind of uh, add to the weight of this value that we have, is we are having what's called a Pray For Me campaign. On September 24th, Sunday evening, 6.30 p.m., we are having this massive uh, uh, night of prayer. We're putting focus and energy and resources to this event. And it's coming uh, all for the place of what would it look like if the church came alongside families in praying for those families and also individual students and children. Uh, I'm going to show a video here in a moment, but also you can read more about it in the bulletin as well as that first table that you see when you walk right in those front doors. Uh, it's going to be a night just uh, if you are the head of a household and you're thinking, I would love it if uh, there were people out there praying for uh, me and my spouse and my children by name. Or if you're out there thinking like, hey, I have a huge passion for praying for other people. I would love to be a prayer champion or warrior for an individual or even an entire family. There's a place to sign up for that out there. And also, if you're just a student or a child, like, I would love for someone to pray for me individually by name. There's a spot for that. And it's going to be um, up for the next three weeks, and you'll be hearing more information uh, about this as we get there. But uh, we want we want Southwest to be a church that is uh, devoted and intentional as far as the next generation goes. So this entire series is kind of leading up to that Pray For Me event that everyone in this room, you're invited to be a part of, whether or not uh, your entire family attends here or not. Um, but after this video shows, we're going to invite Eric Kraft, our junior high minister, up uh, just for an interview on his uh, area of expertise. Uh, but leading up to that, uh, take a look, learn more about what this Pray For Me campaign and night is going to be all about. Once again, mark your calendars, September 24th, 6.30 p.m. here in this very room. 
Uh, so on the stage with me is our junior high minister, Eric Kraft. And uh, part of this series is we wanted to bring up uh, staff members who are uh, focused and have expertise on students and children just to kind of uh, give us a window into their world and kind of talk through things that uh, might be off our radar, our radar, excuse me, and um, things that we can uh, just be more uh, knowledgeable about. So, Eric, we will skip the small talk, if you, okay that's with okay that. with, with you. Um, so you are over uh, our 6th, 7th, and 8th grade students. Uh, for those uh, parents of those students or those involved in uh, or have those kind of students in their lives, um, what, are some, what are some issues, problems, risks, anything like that? What is the typical 6th through 8th grader facing out there that uh, we should all be aware of? Yeah, I think the biggest issue uh, in this day and age probably has to come from social media and the way technology has evolved. Um, and it's it's like 20 years old, like this whole wave of internet being accessible and things like that for us. So we're still learning even how to handle it and the ethics behind it and things like that. And there's so many conversations around that happening. But what it has done is made uh, dangers more accessible to our students now than ever, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's issues of cyberbullying or pornography or et cetera. Uh, all this stuff is much more amplified in junior high of all day and ages now. Um, I was at lunch at the school the other day, yeah. and there was an entire table of kids who were on laptops. When I was in junior high, I had a Razor flip phone and a Nintendo DS, <laughs> like, and now these kids have laptops, and they're sitting there on their laptops yeah. and lunch. I'm like, this is insane. Um, and nowadays, you know, kids don't have to go searching for the dangers of the internet. They can open up Instagram, Snapchat, or Facebook, and boom, it's right there without them even having to look for it. It immediately comes to them. Yeah. Uh, you just mentioned even just uh, what can be the most startling is just even the pornography piece. Um, anymore, it says the average age for a child seeing pornography for the first time is 10 years old. That's the average uh, which I heard that was like, one, it's shocking, but also I believe it just because this is a uh, technology, technology frontier that uh, adults and parents haven't been able to navigate ahead of our students yet. Uh, so in cases like that, this being a, a frontier still, uh, how do we, if we're adults in a position to make a difference, how do we combat this? How do we combat these risks and uh, these potentially uh, bad habits? First and foremost, um, there are tons of cybersecurity softwares for home Wi-Fi and things like that. So if you have young children in the home, some are even free that you can access to block certain sites and things like that just to better set up safeguards for your child. And I think the second and first and foremost thing is know your student's passcode on their phone. Know their password to their devices, all their social media accounts. Check them regularly. Um, don't take, let them take the phone with them to bed. Remove the temptation as much as possible, as much as you can. Um, The goal for our children is at the end of the day, they have total freedom when they turn 18, that they uh, they have the ability to make wise choices, Mm. right? Um, But a 12-year-old does not have the ability yet to make wise choices. No? No, they don't. (laughs) Um, So it's our goal to set up safeguards and boundaries for them so that uh, when they do reach 18, they understand the importance of making wise choices. Sure. And uh, this can be a um, somewhat prickly issue depending on uh, the family that students grow up in. But on the one hand, um, most students, uh, junior high on up, they have a device where they have the entire world um, at their fingertips, both the good and the bad that come with that. Um, But also, considering their age and responsibilities of parents and adults, there comes in that question of 
how much privacy should a student have, should my child have? Uh, where's the line between freedom and boundaries and protection and all that? Um, so I might just ask the specific question, uh, should a student have ultimate privacy? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the end of the day, a 12-year-old, you know, is a 12-year-old. They don't have the ability, like I said earlier, to make rational decisions yet. Um, and I think the end of the day, you know, students probably should have some privacy, you know, like let's be a little generous. Let's give some leeway. Sure. But at the end of the day, it's not an open door. You know, it's still a fence. It's still a boundary that we're putting up and saying you have some freedom, but there's freedom with restrictions because the goal at the end of the day is to give no restrictions when they turn 18 and say, I believe you're an adult. I think you can make wise and capable decisions. So go make them now. Yeah. Um, but our goal is to set them up for future success, and that means a 12-year-old doesn't get privacy. <laughs> Not 100% anyway. Not 100% anyway, at least. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we'll shift gears here a little bit. Uh, you, our children's minister, Tammy Stahl, and a couple of key volunteers, you've been working uh, behind the scenes these last few weeks about something cool we're going to start offering fourth and fifth grade students. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, um, I'm actually really excited about this initiative because as I was doing some research into it to see what other churches and things were doing, um, there's like only one or two churches within the 937 Dayton area that are actually doing this. So um, it's really cool to see Southwest prioritizing this as a whole and seeing some awesome volunteers care about this. Um, But what we are doing is a small group slash youth group type thing for our fourth and fifth graders here on Sunday night. Uh, for for them. And it's an experience where they can have the conversations and learn what our junior hires are learning, but at a level more geared towards them. Mm-hmm. So the conversations aren't as specific as the junior hire is having, but they're geared towards them because the questions are coming up sooner and sooner. So for instance, we're talking about things like, how do I make wise friends? Or what does it mean to be wise? Or how do I handle doubt? Or what's my identity? We're asking those questions now at a younger age so that when they reach junior high, where those questions are even more prevalent and even more amplified, um, they have some basis to be able to handle them. Very cool. Uh, We have a video from uh, interviewing two of these volunteers that are kind of helping to head up this new initiative. So take a look at the screen. I think fourth and fifth grade is vital, especially in today's age of the new internet era and kids knowing way more than they did when I was in the fourth and fifth grade. Um, it gives them the time to get to know God more, to be around other kids with a better influence in life than what maybe they're getting in a school or a playground setting. I, I agree with PJ. I think for me, the fourth and fifth grade decision came because I currently have fourth grader um, boy-girl twins. And I saw last year a need in with some of the questions they were coming home, and they were looking for answers, and not necessarily just from their mom and dad, but maybe as a role model from someone else within the church. And so that's why I felt a need to step up more for the fourth grade specifically. The purpose of this um, is we're trying a new method um, this year at Southwest is having the fourth and fifth graders kind of mimic what the junior high and senior high students already do. So by them coming here and we meet in a large group setting and then we break up in more of a small group setting for the boys and then the girls. And that way when they get to junior high, they're already familiar with the formality and the setup and um, to get that information. It's been awesome. When I first started volunteering, it was basically just because there was a need and they were asking every week and I was very hesitant. 
but as I started doing it and I started to get to know the kids better and you see them change, you see them grow up, you know, and after a few years of doing it, when they walk in the room and you see them go, yes, Mr. BJ's here, you know, you just know that you're making a difference, that they enjoy you, you enjoy them, and that, that you're leaving them with something. And that makes you feel, it makes me smile. Um, I used to be a volunteer in the children's ministry, but that was back when we were at the YMCA. And I got out of it because my twins, I had twins and they were babies. And so I had to step out for several years. But I'm returning, and this is the reason why, it's because I feel like there's a need. Um, as a mom of three kids, I feel like the I need to step up and be there for my kids in the church. But I also want to be a role model for someone else's kids. And that's why I'm doing the fourth and fifth grade um, small groups um, this fall. As I'm hoping that somebody will step up and be a role model for my kids as well. So we, uh, PG and I, are kind of conquering this fourth and fifth grade um, tri- trial this year. Um, it'll be on Sunday starting September 17th at um, 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock, and it'll be here at Southwest Church. Uh, one final question for you, Eric. Um, for those who might be newer to Southwest or uh, that have a 6th, 7th, 8th grader who's not yet plugged into the ministry, uh, what do you offer uh, those students on a regular basis? Yeah, so our regular basis offering is that we do um, a Sunday night programming from 6 to 7.30 at the Kaufman YMCA. There's a nice little poster out here in the front with all our dates on it. Um, and it's just a way for students to meet, hang out, play games, have fun, but also get uh, biblical teaching while also dissecting that in small group setting as well. And then the second thing uh, we have to offer this semester is our fall retreat. From October 20th through the 22nd, junior hires were going on a fall retreat at Butler Springs Christian Camp. The cost is $65. Um, and I say this not to like, you know, spur signups, but because it genuinely does. Uh, the retreat sells out every year. Yeah. Um, it, it goes to capacity. Tons of other churches go to this event every year. So um, if your student is interested in this, sign up soon, like within the next few weeks or so, because we want your student to be able to uh, partake in this awesome experience. Um, you know, a retreat is like three months of Sunday night experiences, so there's no, there's no like limit to the value a fall retreat can bring. Exactly right. Well, hey, thank you for the time. Let's thank Eric for coming up, talking to us about this age group. <clears throat> So if last week we got to go through that phrase, hear, O Israel, uh, this weekend it's kind of over this phrase, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And hearing that uh, this morning, it doesn't, have, it doesn't necessarily feel powerful or all that meaningful, but if we were rewind several thousand years, and if we were hearing this as an ancient Israelite, then this idea likely would have been revolutionary. The perspective that then, back then was not that there was just one God, but several, scores, even hundreds, had a God for everything. Uh, the weather, water, the temperature, um, stars in the sky, moon, sun, a soil, your farming, the crops, all that. Everything had, um, like it had its own God. And the perspective was, like, if I behave myself well, then the gods will bless me. Or if I mess up, or even if they're just having a bad day, things will go terribly. Their view was that the gods were imperfect and also very, very temperamental. And then this revolutionary idea comes on the scene that, one, there is just one God. He's all-powerful. And get this, probably the most controversial or hard to believe at all, but he is all-loving. So when you hear that for the first time, that changes things for you. And when you start to believe that, 
then it means that your entire life has been changed. So this new, uh, God's people, these ancient Israelites, the Jewish people, they come under this new reality that the Lord is our God, singular, him alone, and also that he is all-powerful and especially all-loving. So a relationship with him was really all that mattered. Everything about their lives, their relationships, their habits, it came down to their relationship with God. That was their center. And we kind of with that idea, what we want to have like this truth or this through line, this uh, truth threading throughout the entire series is the idea that for us in this room, the only thing that matters today, in fact, the only thing that met will matter 100 years from now is our relationship with Jesus. The only thing that will matter 100 years from the day is our relationship with Jesus. You know, this idea of fusion, the church and family coming together, it's uh, come from this philosophy called orange, which uh, it's the exact same idea of church and family. Um, But for those who have been uh, in this kind of orange world or the idea of church and family coming together, uh, I've known that some people have in their house, um, you know, there's this idea that uh, our children, they're in their houses, or at least um, have to be in our houses for, you know, the first 18 to 19 years. And there's a, a practice out there that uh, someone had an idea. I was like, okay, so I get my child for 18 to 19 years, and in each year there are 52 weeks. So some people have a vase in their house or a vase if you're a fancy person, and they have, uh, you know, marbles representing each week of every year in this vase. And someone did, I didn't do the math, but someone came up to me after last hour and said, hey, it's 936 weeks or 936 marbles. And they have all these marbles in a vase. And the idea is at the end of each week, you take out a marble because one week has gone by. And if a family like looks at this week after week, it doesn't seem like a whole lot is happening. But if you look at this vase with full of marbles year after year, you can start to see time running out. By the time they're nine or 10, it's half empty. By the time they're 12, 13, it's three quarters gone. And eventually, that, uh, at the end of that 18th year, it's going to be just a few marbles left, and a day will come where there's one marble left that a mother or father will take out. Talk about a powerful reminder of the precious, preciousness and the value of time that we have with our kids. There can be sometimes a tense, um, uh, not a, it's not an argument, but a tense situation as far as, you know, who's responsible for the spiritual life of our children? Is it the church or is it families? On the one hand, yeah, this is kind of where we officially come together in the name of Jesus. Uh, but also, I, I'm always on the side of, at the end of the day, whether we realize it or not, parents are the real youth ministers. Parents are the real children's ministers. And there was a study done that kind of, kind of sells this point home. Uh, someone did some math and did some research, and they said that on average, uh, someone in my position gets on average just 40 hours in a given year with any given student. 40 hours. That might sound like a lot. That might sound like a little. But if we lay that next to how many hours the average parent gets with their child, and they did the math, they did the research, this doesn't count like hour sleep or anything. This is actual interaction in the same room, a time that parents get with children. Church gets about 40 hours on average a year. A parent gets, on average, 3,000 hours with their children in a given year. So we put things that way. The conversation comes up, all right, moms and dads are getting more time with their kids than the churches, so how can the church come alongside and support them in their role as real youth minister and real children's minister? 
Uh, decades ago, there's that famous book came on the scene, uh, Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It was a textbook for me in college, and uh, habit number two of the seven is called Beginning with the End in Mind, or to use our language this morning, Imagining the End. So Covey writes this in his book. He writes, so what do you want to be when you grow up? That question may appear a little trite, but think about it for a moment. Are you right now who you want to be, what you dreamed you'd be, doing what you always wanted to do? And be honest. Sometimes people find themselves achieving victories that are empty, successes that have come at the expense of things that were far more valuable to them. If your ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step you take gets you to the wrong place faster. The idea of beginning with the end in mind it is based on imagination, the ability to envision in your mind what you cannot at present see with your eyes. It's based on the principle that all things are created twice. There is the mental creation, that's the first one, followed by a physical creation, that's the second one. The physical creation follows the mental, just as a building follows a blueprint. And if you don't make a conscious effort to visualize who you are and what you want in life, then you empower other people and circumstances to shape you and your life just by default. It's about connecting again with your own uniqueness and then defining the personal, moral, and ethical guidelines within which you can most happily express and fulfill yourself. Beginning with the end in mind means to begin each day, task, or project with a clear vision of your desired direction and destination, and then continue by flexing your proactive muscles to make things happen. That's beginning with the end in mind. That's imagining the end. Let me do some substituting of words and a piece back up in this paragraph that kind of uh, would make more sense for our purposes this morning. He just as easily could have written, if you don't make a conscious effort to visualize who you want your child to be and what you want for them in this life and in eternity, then you empower other people and circumstances to shape their life just by default. It's about connecting with your child and their uniqueness and then helping them define, in the name of Jesus, their personal, moral, and ethical guidelines that they can fulfill themselves as a devoted Jesus follower. My professor who assigned this book for me back sophomore year of college, he had this phrase he repeat often, and I think about this at least weekly. And he always told us, and it's tattooed on my mind, he always told us that if you aim at nothing you're going to hit it every time. If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. And for our purposes this morning, we could kind of couple that truth with this truth, that no one follows Jesus on accident. No one has ever really followed Jesus just by default. If we go back to Exodus 20, where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, the very first command he gives Moses for all people is uh, that, follow me only. You should have no other gods before me. And this might be the first command he gives because it's the easiest for us to break. We are just naturally, we just excellent by default, putting things in God's place. Be that uh, money, be that status, be that our own personalities, just anything that we want. We're just naturally very, very good at that. We don't even have to try. Most of us are so good at this. Uh, I don't know how anyone feels about uh, satire. I know satire is a very dangerous thing. 
uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, this online satirical Christian news source called the Babylon Bee came on the scene. And it has the same flavor of the onion, if you're familiar with that piece of satirical news. Um, But just the idea of satire, it's very much like when Jesus would tell his parables. He would tell a story, but there's often a uh, maybe a harsh truth or a sting at the end. A moral that might be hard to hear if it weren't crafted in a creative way. And so satire is the same way, going at uh, bringing about a harsh maybe truth through the use of humor. Just to give you an idea of what the Babylon Bee can be behind, here are a few headlines that they've put out recently. Here's one headline. Church introduces new soundproof section for bad singers. Another one. Church mistakenly employs homeless musician for three years thinking he was the new youth pastor. And here's one that was written about me. Churchgoer leaps through window to escape holding hands in prayer circle. So you kind of get the idea of this satirical news source coming uh, your way. And I came across, I came across this uh, headline a few months ago on the Babylon Bee's site. And it is satire, but it does come with a bite. The headline reads this. After 12 years of quarterly church attendance, parents shocked by daughter's lack of faith. And here's how this article starts. I'll read from it. Local father Trevor Michelson, 48, and his wife Carrie, 45, are reeling after discovering that after 12 years of steadily taking their daughter Janie to church every Sunday, they didn't have a more pressing sporting commitment. She no longer demonstrates the strong quarterly commitment to the faith they raised her with now that she is college-aged. Trevor Michelson was simply stunned at the revelation. Quote, I just don't understand it. Almost every time... Almost every single time there was a rained-out game or a break between school and club team seasons, we had Janie in church. It was at least once per quarter. And aside from the one tournament in 2011, we never missed an Easter. It was obviously a priority in our family. I just don't get where her spiritual apathy is coming from. Some humor there, but with a bite, with a sting. Uh, there's a book that we're all working through as a staff that's kind of uh, been the basis for this series. And the author, Reggie Joyner, he has this excellent quote. He says, When it comes to the battle for the heart, what is temporary has a way of crowding out what is eternal. When it comes to the battle for the heart, what is temporary has a way of crowding out what is eternal. Now, uh, I was a very involved, committed uh, student growing up. Just in high school alone, I did the marching band thing in the summer and fall. I was part of the track team in the spring. My school had a radio station. I was on staff for that. And uh, I was um, at church many times uh, on any given week. So I was the uh, subject of parents who wanted their child to be well-rounded, a functional adult, and certainly a normal adult. So we want this for our kids. Of course we do. Um, all these extracurriculars. In fact, I I get to be uh, a a cross-country coach for the high school cross-country team. And just yesterday, my first six hours of the day was just being at this meet in Lebanon. And these are fantastic kids. And they're learning great stuff like hard work, commitment, uh, endurance, um, just getting up in the morning when you don't want to get up in the morning. Just wonderful things. Um, And also, it's always, anytime you make a blanket statement, I I just hate blanket statements just because they're always unfair. And I try and stay away from generalities, um, but also when addressing a group like this, we kind of have to weed through, like, every, everyone has a different context and situation that they're in. 
But sometimes we're committed in places where we shouldn't be as committed or our values are misplaced or honestly just uh, we can fall victim to the temporary crowding out what is um, what's eternal. But I know this because just the world I live in, I get to be a part of many students' lives and I get to be the watcher on the wall in some cases. But I know that when we treat Jesus as optional or when our kids and students see us treating Jesus as optional, they grew up to see him as unnecessary. When we treat Jesus as optional now, our kids grow up to see him as unnecessary later. I know, um, you know, uh, at least me and my friends, we would talk about how, what our parents wanted for us. And we, our parents wanted us to be, you know, financially successful, and they wanted us to have a good reputation out there. And I can remember, I just tell this one story, I remember the moment... I remember the moment where money became, like, not a big deal at all for me. Uh, I was going uh, deer hunting with my dad. I've been twice. I got one both times, so I'm batting a 1,000. I'm never going again because I don't want to mess with that record. But we were at the Gander Mountain there and, in Indianapolis, and uh, you can get a permit, you know, depending on what game you're after. And uh, I was a poor college student, and each permit cost about 25 bucks, and I couldn't decide. I was like, Dad, should I get, buy a permit for... Uh, antler or antlerless? Uh, I couldn't decide because 50 bucks seemed like a lot of money to me. And dad just says, you may as well get them both. After all, it's only money. Now, there's nothing powerful in that statement at all. That's something that you would see on a bumper sticker. Someone wouldn't frame that on their wall. But because my dad said it, it rang true. And that's the moment I can point to where Money didn't, was not something that I would chase after for the rest of my life. May as well get both. After all, it's only money. I got to thinking about a parable that Jesus uh, told a bunch of his followers when there was a crowd around him. Just as far as, um, you know, we chase temporary things sometimes and we put value on things that shouldn't hold nearly the level of values that they hold. Anyway, this is from Luke chapter 12. He's got the crowd around him. Here's how it reads. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. And Jesus replied, Friend, who made me judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, Beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, What should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? And the sting comes with this. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Who do we really want to become? Who do we want our kids to become? There's another famous book that could be on many of our shelves, the book titled, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. The title, I mean, the book is about exactly what the title says. Here are some things that we all learned in kindergarten that, uh, that have proved uh, successful or wise for our own life. Here's a list. Things you really need to know that we all learned in kindergarten. Share everything. Play fair. 
Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Learn some and drink some and draw some and paint some and sing and dance and play and work every day some. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands and stick together. Be aware of wonder. Remember the little seed in the styrofoam cup. The roots go down and the plant goes up and nobody really knows how or why, but we're all like that. Goldfish and hamster and white mice and even the little seed in the styrofoam cup, they all die, so do we. And then remember the Dick and Jane books and the first word you learned, the biggest word of all, look. It could be said that all we really need to know in this room is that the Lord is our God and he alone is. All we really need to know is that the only thing that matters today and a hundred years from now is our relationship with Jesus. We're in the practice every week of practicing communion, and in some ways, this is a meal that Jesus instituted, and in some ways, this is the only meal that will matter in a hundred years from now. Were we one with Jesus? So we set this time aside as a time of worship, and it's a time of gratitude. It's a time where Jesus says, do this, and when you do this, remember me. That's the entire point. Because I think Jesus knew that the temporary has the power to crowd out the eternal. And this is a time where we get to be reminded that Jesus says, I am eternal. I'm not temporary. Your relationship with me is not temporary. It's eternal. So I'm going to pray for us and... uh, If you need some guidance or want some guidance, let's go into this with thanks and gratitude that in a hundred years from now, something about our lives will matter. And that's our relationship with him. So pray with me. Father, in this moment, if you would, help us treat this as holy. Uh, Help us be grateful. Help us be thankful. Uh, As we take this juice and we take this bread, Help us be reminded that life is not about us, even if we came in with monumental problems and struggles and addictions and stress, that in a hundred years from now, it won't matter. But you will, and that you do now. So we give this time to you, uh, and we ask that uh, you help us with it. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m.